Our scripture reading this evening is from Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. We are skipping just temporarily the passage from 14 through 29 about the beheading of John the Baptist. I couldn't find a way to make that a preparatory sermon, so we're moving ahead. But it's okay because time-wise, this is not chronological anyway, so we'll be coming back to that passage in the near future. So tonight, Mark 6, verses 30 through 44. Hear the Word of God. And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told Him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And He said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place, and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. And the people saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran afoot thither out of all cities, and outwent them, and came together unto him. And Jesus, when he came out, that is, out of the ship, saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them, because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away that they may go into the country round about, and into the villages, and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. He answered and said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, Shall we go and buy two hundred penny worth of bread, and give them to eat? He saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? Go and see. And when they knew, they say, Five. And two fishes. And he commanded them to make all sit down by companies upon the green grass, and they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and brake the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments and of the fishes. And they did eat of the loaves were about five thousand men. May God bless the reading of his precious word. We'll make confession now in the form of the Westminster Larger Catechism, questions 12 and 13. What are the decrees of God? God's decrees are the wise, free, and holy acts of the counsel of His will, whereby from all eternity He hath for His own glory unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in time, especially concerning angels and men. 
and 13, What hath God especially decreed concerning angels and men? God, by an eternal and immutable decree, out of His mere love for the praise of His glorious grace to be manifested in due time, hath elected some angels to glory, and in Christ hath chosen some men to eternal life, and the means thereof, and also according to His sovereign power and the unsearchable counsel of His own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth favor as he pleaseth, hath passed by and foreordained the rest to dishonor and wrath to be for their sin inflicted to the praise of the glory of his justice. Dear church family, today, as you know, is Father's Day, so-called. The very word Father prompts all kinds of feelings in everyone. For those with special, warm, compassionate, loving fathers, it's a very warm term. It's thought of fondly. And for those who don't have a good relationship with their own father, it can often be a word that seems to make them wince a word that hurts because they haven't felt their father's compassion and love and guidance. No doubt for most of us who are fathers, we have a mixture of feelings because we, we feel our own shortcomings, our own sins, our lack. We know we should be better fathers. We know that Our fatherhood should be patterned after God's fatherhood. And we haven't reached the goal. But we are encouraged at the same time that Jesus himself is called the everlasting father. That he is fatherly. And that Isaiah 9 verse 6 says his name is wonderful. Counselor, the mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And so we look to him in all our shortcomings, also as fathers, as a sterling model of what fatherhood ought to be like and look like, so that whatever our relationship to our own earthly father might have been or may still be today, whether good or bad, there is a better father, there is a perfect fatherly redeemer who shows us compassion And fatherly love, as we heard this morning, in ways that are absolutely unspeakable. Ways that pass all understanding. And tonight, I want to set that sterling model before you. From Mark 6, 30 to 44. I'm going to just read again right now, verse 42. And they did all eat and were filled. Our theme tonight, with God's help, is Christ's fatherly wilderness provisions. And we'll look at four thoughts. First, Christ is the fatherly opener of the heart. Second, the fatherly bringer of rest. Third, the fatherly shepherd teacher of the Word. And fourth, the fatherly multiplier of bread and fish. Well, 
The miracle of the feeding of the so-called 5,000, that is 5,000 men, is one of the most well-known, important miracles in the Bible. In fact, it's the only one recorded by all four gospel writers. It's filled with Old Testament imagery, prophecy, typology, and fulfillment. But behind all of its Old Testament illusions, the overriding purpose of this miracle, as we shall see tonight, is to exhibit Jesus Christ's glory as the fatherly, compassionate, all-sufficient, all-satisfying Savior. So that believers might be drawn to Him and have their faith strengthened in Him alone. And so in a sense, our text tonight has much the same purpose as the Lord's Supper that we hope to commemorate next week. Namely, to strengthen our weak faith in our glorious, fatherly, compassionate Redeemer as we journey through this wilderness world on our way to the wilderness-free world to come. text begins tonight, verse 30, with the disciples coming back to Jesus after their first preaching tour that they had done independently of Him. You remember that from a week or two ago. From village to village, they had been preaching the gospel of the kingdom, raising the dead, casting out devils, healing the sick. And now they have completed their first independent preaching itinerary. And so they return to Jesus for ongoing counsel from their only, their supreme, their wise, their faithful, loving seminary teacher. Verse 30 puts it this way, The apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told Him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. There's a sense of excitement, of eagerness, of joy. They went back to home base, which is Jesus, and they shared everything with Him. Their fatherly teacher, what they had done, what they had taught others, what they had experienced. This is a beautiful, fatherly picture. Already in the opening verse of our text, Jesus, you can picture him, can't you? All 12 of them surrounding him. Each of them eager to share what they've been through. It's a picture that resonates a lot with me. When students come back and you say to them, how'd it go? And they pour out their heart. It's a, it's a great feeling. Or my own father though gone nearly 30 years from now, I remember more than anything else about him. And I miss more than anything else about, about him. That Monday morning call he would always give me and say, how did it go yesterday? What'd you preach on? Did you get some encouraging responses afterward? And I would, I would tell my dad. I miss that now. But that's what the disciples had here. A fatherly Questions they could ask of this fatherly, 
Savior, or student questions they could ask of this fatherly Savior. Not only about their sermons, but also about the healings they had engaged in, the divine acts they were enabled to perform with zeal. What, what a conversation. Wouldn't you have liked to have been a, a fly in the wall of that room when they talked and watched the interaction between Jesus and the Twelve? So fatherly, so meaningful, so instructive. But actually, if we're not preachers, but if you're still a believer, we ought to have this kind of relationship with Jesus even in our own homes and in our own hearts. And you, Dad, as a father in your own home, you ought to strive to emulate this, don't you think? This is a great example. Jesus' example here as a teacher of teachers, as a fatherly teacher, of how we should teach in our own homes as, as much as we are able. Our homes, the Puritans used to say, ought to be like little churches with the father being the family minister seeking to work the kingdom into the souls of His children every day, laboring to bring the Word of God in ways both natural and spiritual, seeking to sow gospel seed in ourselves, our spouse, our children, through teaching, through prayer, so as to promote holiness and fellowship with God. So dear fathers, on on Father's Day, may I ask you, in humble dependence upon your fatherly Savior? Are you striving to to teach, to disciple your family in gospel truth by drawing out their souls to open up to you and then to provide biblical guidance to them? Well, maybe you say, but I'm of course not Jesus and I I just don't know how to do this. It's hard for me to get people, much less my own children, to open up to me. Well, you can do it, though. You can do it. You could just follow the example of Jesus. Here, we don't read much detail how he got them to open up, but we read a whole lot more in Luke 24, the travelers to Emmaus. He got them to open up, didn't he? He says, well, what things are troubling you? And they begin to open up, and he begins to Ask them more questions, and pretty soon everything tumbles out. That's the way to get your children to open up. And one of the best places for that is family worship, as you ask questions and allow them to open up and listen to them and respond to them and pray for God's blessing upon them and pray with them and for them and show them your interest and your love and your fatherly demeanor. But no matter who we are, for a true believer... The question from this first point of this sermon tonight really is this, isn't it? Are we telling our fatherly Savior all things? Do we receive His Word through preaching and reading? And then just like these apostles, do we gather ourselves with Christ, as it were, back through prayer and tell Him all things? Mary Winslow used to say to her son Octavius, When you go to God in prayer, tell Him everything about you as if He knew nothing about you, yet knowing He knows all things about you. And trust His fatherly guidance. 
Well, but why? Why should we really do that? Well, for all kinds of reasons. First, we heard about this morning, because we love Him. And we want to be transparent before Him and vulnerable to Him. We, we really want to be His students. We want to be teachable. And second, because we want to learn so much from Him. He's got such a storehouse of knowledge for us. He's the omniscient Savior. He's got an answer for every question. And third, because we want the power of His Spirit, don't we? To, to walk worthy of the vocation to which we are called. Not by might or by our power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Fourth, we want to tell Him everything because we want His forgiveness for all our shortcomings and sins. And fifth, we want to tell Him all because we want to thank Him for His mercies and help and praise Him and adore Him for who He is. But most of all, sixthly and finally, we want to tell Him everything because we want a real, our forefathers called it vital, living relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And we know deep down that when we don't have that relationship, when we grow lukewarm, when we backslide, you see, our lives then soon fall into either just outward traditions and and form and emptiness, or they fall into shambles. And all our life and all our work and all our relationships become vain. Except the Lord build the house. They labor in vain that build it. And so the way to relate to Jesus is to tell him, well, tell him everything. Even before we pray. And then while we pray. And then after we pray. Lord Jesus, I've I've been in the Word today. I've studied it. I've, I've tried to share it with others. I, I'm seeking Thy help to serve and labor in Thy kingdom. Lord, bless it. Except Thou dost bless it, Lord. It's all in vain. Except for the Holy Spirit's efficacious power. It will be impotent. It will come to nothing. Help me to receive Thy Word, to return it to Thee, also by speaking it to others, to my children, to loved ones, to friends, to neighbors, to work associates. Let us strive to be related to Jesus the way these twelve were related here. They came back to Him eagerly, lovingly, zealously, and they communicated intimately with all their heart to their fatherly, compassionate Savior who opened His heart for them. But like a diamond, if you turn it, it has different facets of beauty. So Jesus' fatherly wilderness provisions here have another facet. That's our second point. Mark shows us this second facet of Christ's fatherliness in that he's a fatherly bringer of rest. The disciples... They've been very busy. They've been preaching in all the villages. People were surrounding them. Verse 31 says, people were coming and going in their ministry. So much so that they had no leisure so much as to eat. 
Sometimes we read over things in the Bible, we, stopped, we don't stop to think about them. But have you ever been so busy you couldn't find time to eat? Maybe you've been so busy that you couldn't finish off your checklist. But somehow you found time to eat. But these apostles are so busy, they couldn't find time to eat. There were so many people to serve with so many requests. And so Jesus, seeing that as a wise, caring father, comes to them and says, Come you apart, yourselves, into a desert place. Desert place could better be translated here, a wilderness. Come you apart, yourselves, into a wilderness and rest a while. It's so fatherly, isn't it? It's almost motherly in a way. But it's beautiful. Jesus cares for all the needs of his sheep. He provides rest for his people in the wilderness of this world. That's a familiar theme in Deuteronomy. In Joshua, it crops up again in Isaiah 63 and Jeremiah 31 verse 2. And most importantly, in Hebrews from chapter 3, 7 all the way to 4, 12. The author reflects on there is a rest for the people of God. Now this rest is twofold, of course. It's physical and it's spiritual. Jesus supplies both. First of all, Jesus is calling them to actually physically rest. Having assumed our human nature, he knows our frame and frailty. He remembers we are but dust. God, of course, is infinite and boundless and omnipotent. But we are finite, limited, weak. When we exert considerable energy, we need rest. And Jesus knows that because he's taken on our human nature. Actually, Psalm 127 describes the fool as someone who works all the time, staying up very late, and then getting up very early. He's a fool because he doesn't submit to God's order, to his creaturely creaturely limitations. He's acting more like he's the creator who never sleeps or slumbers, rather than the creature. We must learn to bow under our human limitations and capacities. We do need times of rest. In fact, God has built this day, the Lord's day, into our calendar each week as a time of rest. A time to come apart, to rest, to be refreshed, to renew our energy. And if you're like me, sometimes you, you may resist that a bit. And you may test your limits. And you need to pull back. I remember saying one time to my wife, I, I wish there were 48 hours in a day. My wife was very wise. I stood rebuked. She said, I think God knew what he was doing when he gave us 24. You see, God sets our physical clock in accord with his divine plan. And so we need to rest. To rest physically can be sacred work. You see, to rest is not to be lazy. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? Proverbs 6, 9 says. 
We're not talking about that kind of resting, oversleeping, uh, being lazy. But we need to understand the nature of rest. There are times when you need complete rest after surgery, for example, or when you're mentally entirely drained, or when you're depressed. Your physician may say to you, you need, you need to do really nothing but rest. Your body is crying out for rest. But most of the time, rest includes engaging the mind in something that is different, but yet productive and intelligent. Could be a good hobby, could be walking, could be hunting, fishing, could be reading, studying, meditating. Rest doesn't usually mean doing nothing. Rest means you engage in certain activities other than your normal work to refresh your mind and your body so you get re-energized for your normal work. So Jesus sees this in his disciples. They need, they need a break. They need to recuperate. They need to re-energize for the purpose of fulfilling their God-given calling. Now, Jesus isn't advocating what's so common today, which is a kind of a obsession with the human body, an obsession with rest and health and, well, Today, there's so much literature about how important it is to rest that some people become obsessed with it and actually abuse God's gift of work by hardly working because they're so intent on resting all the time. We need a balance in life. That's what Jesus is recognizing here with his disciples. We need to rest in a balanced way, the right way, in right places, in a right measure, at the right time, to the right degree, according to the way that God has wired us, and made us physically. But secondly, Jesus surely is talking here about spiritual rest, don't you think? Spiritual rest. What are they going to do in the wilderness? They're going to be engaged in fellowship with Jesus Christ. He's going to be with them there. He's going to go on teaching them there in a quiet way. Verse 32 says, that he departed into a wilderness by ship to have private time with the twelve. Actually, in his human nature, even Jesus needed this kind of rest. It's interesting, we've already seen that, by the way, back in Mark 1, 35, that Jesus often left crowds and the sick and his disciples even to go into a desert place, a wilderness, or a mountain to be alone to pray to his Father. And if he needed time alone with his father, how much more do we need time alone for spiritual refreshment? See, too often we prioritize busyness and decimate our times of spiritual fellowship with Jesus You know the temptation. You've got a million and one things to do today. So you give as little time as your conscience will allow to word and to prayer. And and you give as much time as possible to the things you have to do. Have to do, you say. And the result is, Christ doesn't increase in your life, but decreases. You see, the problem 
is that we think we have the strength, the ability, the wisdom to live apart from Christ for short periods of time. But Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Without Jesus, you can't be properly a dad or a mom for that matter. You can't properly eat. Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. You can't properly engage your own family in discussion. You can't properly even work. You, you really can't do anything without Jesus. And so blessed is he or she who realizes that we need to come to a place experientially in our own life where we realize that if we do not do what we do in and through Christ, we have no real joy, no real power, no real purpose, no real meaning in life that honors Him and does our soul good. Without faith in Christ, everything ultimately is sinful because we're not loving God above all. And so what that means is at the core of our day, at the core of our day must be this longing and this time set apart to give ourselves to Christ, not just as a duty, but as a delight. Uh, Song of Solomon 2.3 puts it this way, as the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. <laughs> you don't... You don't get that, do you? You don't get that experientially when you just fill your day to, like an overstuffed compartment and have no time to think about God or about Jesus. How wonderful, how sweet, on the other hand, to the soul are those times when we, by the grace of the Spirit, may have sweet communion with Christ, be it in the, in the inner closet or be it spontaneously throughout the day. When the Word of God taken in, is prayed back to God with communion and a sweet relish of His presence. At such times, you see, we may know that Christ is with us. We may know that we can say, Thou knowest all things, Lord, Thou knowest that I love Thee. We may know that our comfort in life and death is not in belonging to ourselves, but in being possessed by Him. And there may be then this spontaneous heavenly joy and assurance that goes back to Him as we cry out, My beloved Jesus is mine, and I am His. And it fills our soul with joy and peace that passes all understanding. So whatever you do in life, be sure you come apart daily to be alone with Jesus, to find spiritual Rest. Because unlike many of the things on your to-do list, this spiritual rest is non-negotiable. Jesus didn't say, apostles, how about it? Would you, would you like to, would you like to go with me into a desert place? No, no. He says, come, come ye yourselves. Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place. It's a loving, fatherly command. He sees their need for physical, for spiritual 
rest. But then there's a third facet to this diamond. He's also the fatherly shepherd teacher of the Word in verses 33 and 34. If you have your Bibles open, I hope you do, because we're walking through this. They departed into a desert place by ship privately, and then the people, notice this, saw them departing. Many knew him, and they ran, and they came together unto him. So that by the time he got to the place, well, when Jesus stepped off the ship, he thought he was going to take them to a private place, and here are all these people, thousands of them. And he's moved with compassion toward them. Because they were his sheep, not having his shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. I'm going to separate these two things, but really they're like tied together. But we're going to separate them so that we can see Jesus in both fatherly aspects. But notice how they're brought together here. He saw they were his sheep, not having his shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. He's a shepherd-teacher. He's a shepherd-teacher. He's moved. He's moved with compassion. Now Matthew tells us that these 5,000 men were all just the number of the men. There were probably another 5,000 women there, and then another five to 10,000 children. Some commentators say probably close to 20,000 people. Well, some desert place. But you see, this is God's calling upon Jesus and upon the apostles at this particular moment. They didn't quite get the rest they were looking for right now. I'm sure they got it later. But this remarkable expression, this remarkable expression, as sheep not having a shepherd, just pierces, penetrates the entire interior being of the Lord Jesus. How different this is from the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, the rabbis of the day, the elders, the teachers of the law. They cared only about themselves, Jesus said. They were like the false shepherds of Ezekiel 34. They didn't really care for the sheep. When a wild beast comes, what do these Pharisees do? Jesus said, They flee like a hireling in John 10. They look after themselves and and they run away. They put burdens of man-made rules and man-made regulations on the people. They suffocate the truth with man-made traditions and, and legalism. The Pharisees offer no grace, only works righteousness. People are lost. They're wandering. They're miserable. They're like defenseless sheep. They're in danger of hell fire. But ultimately, the Pharisees don't care that much. But Jesus does. And we ought to care like that. We ought to care with the kind of bowels of compassion that Jesus cared for here. You know, the word compassion here is a visceral word. It literally means that as a fatherly shepherd, Jesus' kidneys, his his insides, his reins were moved and affected by pity. His stomach was churning. The indwelling compassion he had toward all these people, sheep without a shepherd. You know, when you see a pitiful, homeless, hungry little girl 
on a picture even, with no one to care for her. Your internal being just kind of wells up with emotion, doesn't it? With deep-seated compassion. That's what happens to Jesus here. And that ought to happen to us when we come into contact with unsaved people who have no shepherd. And isn't that exactly what the masses of people are like also today? Tens of thousands of people all around us are like sheep without a shepherd. And what do our leaders do? Where is truth and where is grace in our day of false news and false truth? Presidents and politicians and governments and media and academics, the vast majority of them are shepherdless shepherds. And people are everywhere looking for answers to life's questions. What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? Why am I suffering? Why is there death? What happens at death? What happens on the other side of death? Today's false shepherds have no answers. And it's all ironic, isn't it? It's almost tragic. We live in the most technological age ever. And yet there have never been so few answers to life's real questions as today. There's never been so much depression, so much suicide, so much misery, so much hopelessness as today. People wander about, the blind leading the blind from one philosophy to another, one idea to another, one theology to another, one physician to another. And none of them satisfy the human soul. None of them bring abiding truth and joy and peace and meaning and fulfillment. My friend, you and I need the true shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's moved with compassion when he looks upon an unsaved person. If you're not saved tonight, I need to say to you, You're in tremendous need. The sad news is that some of you don't realize it. The good news is that some of you do. And the even better news is that Jesus does. And Jesus has compassion. Compassion upon sinners just like you. Unworthy, hell-worthy, wretched sinners. But you say, I'm not sure he'd have compassion on me. How do I know he will respond favorably to me? I've been stuck in sin all my life. I'm a hell-worthy sinner. Well, we may know, and you may know. And the answer is right before us tonight in our text. You see, Jesus is illustrating in this miracle He's illustrating that he has compassion upon sinners and that his promise is that all who come to him, he will in no wise cast out. The very word compassion is an illustration. It's a graphic picture of who he is because that is who his Father is and because that is who the Holy Spirit is. The triune God delights in compassion and mercy, says Micah. I love Thomas Watson's statement when he says that God's familiar work 
is his mercy, his compassionate mercy. Justice is his strange work. He says God's justice is like a bee. A bee will provoke only when it's provoked. A bee will sting only when it's provoked. Watson goes on to say, So God will only exercise His justice when provoked, but His delight is in exercising His mercy, for He is full of mercy. Maybe one reason why you've stayed away from God all your life is because you've always had a wrong understanding about the character of God. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says, God is the Father of mercies. Ephesians 2.4 says he's rich in mercy. Psalm 86.5 says he's plenteous in mercy. Micah 7.18 says he delights in mercy. And you see, all of this is now manifested in the compassionate heart of Jesus to these 15,000, 20,000 sinners before him. Mark says he's moved with fatherly, shepherding compassion. It's his nature. It's his nature to be like this. He's the good, the great, the chief shepherd who willingly lays down his life for his sheep. And so you may come to him just as you are and say, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and confess all your sins and tell him everything. And he will not cast you away. He embraces the penitent. It's a picture of himself and of his father he gives us in Luke 15. When the father sees the prodigal returning, confessing his sin, he runs to him with legs of mercy. He wraps his arms around him with arms of mercy. He kisses him with the kisses of mercy. He receives him. He says, slay the fatted calf. Put the ring on his finger. Sandals on his feet. Signs of legitimate sonship. He's back into the family. Let us rejoice and be merry. For this, my son was dead, but is alive. He was lost. He's found. That is Jesus. That is the Father. That is the Holy Spirit. Don't stay away from this Savior. He's a compassionate shepherd. And he'll shepherd you all the way home to everlasting life. And dear believer, you are his sheep. He is your shepherd. You too have trials in the wilderness of this world. You too encounter dark days and seasons. You struggle. There perhaps often are tears in your eyes. And you have perhaps at times have sleepless nights for reasons you know all too well. Just come to Christ again and again. He was full of mercy to you in the past. He'll be full of mercy to you again. He's your great high priest who holds you fast to himself, Hebrews 4.15, that you may, Hebrews 4.14, hold fast to him. So come to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. To help from not your empathetic high priest, but your sympathetic high priest who enters into your afflictions with you and who is tempted in all points like as you are. He shall feed, Isaiah 40 says, his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arms. He shall carry them in his bosom. He shall gently lead those that are with young. That's for you, dear needy believer. That's for you. He's that kind of shepherd. 
a shepherd of compassion. Don't stay away next Lord's Day morning from this compassionate shepherd. He will never, no, never, no, never forsake you. And so he begins to teach. Because he's a shepherd, because he sees a sheep without a shepherd, he begins to teach. He's a shepherd teacher. He begins to teach them, Mark says, many things. What a fatherly shepherd teacher he is. He teaches them exactly what they need to hear. Because he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He teaches them about himself. He's not a vague teacher. He doesn't beat around the bush. He gets right to the heart of the matter. He goes to the root of the problem. He heals with his word. So that the wound... The blood flow from the wound is stopped. He doesn't put a band-aid over a bleeding wound, but he probes the wound to its depth. He teaches us, when he teaches us, that we are like sheep who've gone astray. We've turned to our own way. But he also teaches us that for sinners who return to him, there is a kingdom awaiting them, a kingdom of God, a kingdom of Christ that is righteousness, A kingdom has righteousness for your justification and forgiveness for your crimson sin and peace to reconcile you to God and communion to introduce you into new fellowship with God and joy in delighting in God. And all of this and much more is to be found in Jesus. He's everything you could possibly ever desire. It's who he is, a compassionate shepherd teacher. And what does he actually teach about who he is? Well, Jesus illustrates that with a fourth facet from the diamond of his fatherliness in the miracle of feeding 15,000, 20,000 people from five loaves of bread and two fish. But Jesus taught many things to this crowd, this congregation of fifteen to 20,000. It wasn't a short sermon. He taught them many things, and it got dark. It was getting late. Many of the people had traveled. They were in kind of a wilderness area. Villages are some distance. The disciples decide to take action. And the conversation results goes something like this. Master, send the people to the towns and villages. This is a wilderness after all. So please tell them to go and get food to eat. Jesus, why don't you feed them? The disciples, us, we can't feed them. 200 penny worth of bread. That, by the way, is a whole year's of wages for, for a hardworking man. Wouldn't even be enough to feed them. We don't have the money and we don't know where to go. Jesus, but what do you have? Five loaves and two fish. And Jesus takes the bread and takes the fish. And then, standing in the midst of a crowd of nearly 20,000 souls, the creator of the universe who made the heavens and the earth and all that it contains, who speaks and it comes to pass, 
prays to the God of heaven and earth, his own Father, and blesses the bread and the fish, and then multiplies it in a fatherly way, the bread, the fish, so as to feed the entire multitude. This is not a a miracle of sharing. It's a miracle of multiplication. Everyone is eating, Mark says. Everyone had bread and fish. Everyone was satisfied and filled. In Christ's hands, you see, blessing gets multiplied. In fact, when they gather the leftovers, there's 12 baskets. It's a stupendous miracle. It's sort of like the miracle of manna in the wilderness. But this is not about people just eating this wonderful meal. Christ is teaching his apostles, as well as the tens of thousands, as well as you and me, four beautiful, important truths about limitlessness, his limitlessness. In this wonderful miracle. Let me give them to you briefly. Number one. He's teaching us. His limitlessness. To provide for us. Just imagine Jesus. Just keeps passing out the food. Doesn't end. What's he saying? Well he's saying to the multitude. He's saying to you and me. There's no limit. What I can do for you. When I do something, I don't just do things well, but I do them over and above what you can expect or think. I'm bigger and better and more generous than you can ever imagine, for I am, after all, God Himself. My love, my grace is limitless. My power is limitless. Do you see what I can do? Yes, do you see what I am doing for you? Do you lack anything? I'm your shepherd teacher. I'm your leader. I'm your provision. I'm your rest. I'm your peace. I'm your holiness. I'm your righteousness. I'm your love. I'm your joy. I can just as easily take five loaves and two fish and feed 20,000 people out of the abundance of my fatherly compassion because I am the Lord God omnipotent. And so I can meet your every need. Also your spiritual need. Because I'm full of compassion. I'm plenteous in all that I do. Trust me. I'm limitless in what I can do for you. Secondly, he's teaching us in this wonderful miracle that he's limitless in what he can do through us. Not for us only, but through us. Jesus knows how to make a lot out of a little. This little boy in Mark 6 had five loaves and two fish. But Jesus multiplied them when this boy was willing to give them all to Jesus. That's a whole sermon all by itself, by the way. How God is pleased to use the small measure of gifts he gives us in order to do great exploits for him. Think of Gideon. God even reduced his army to 300 men, so that God would get all the glory through his victory over an enemy that vastly outnumbered them. God is amazing. You see, God can take 
the one or two or three talents that he gives us, the gifts he gives us, and when we bring them all to him and we ask him each day, Lord, make me useful and fruitful today, he can multiply them. He can multiply them. When he gives you a willing heart to give yourself and your gifts away, you may be surprised what God will do in you and with you and through you. So you need to pray for the spirit of that boy who said, here, Jesus, Jesus can have all seven, seven things. He can have everything I have. Pray for the spirit of Isaiah. Here am I. Send me. That God would use your gifts and that you'd be willing to give them all to him for his glory. Shows us here how Jesus can use them in marvelous ways. Third, and perhaps most importantly, Jesus is teaching us here about his limitlessness not only to provide for us and what he can do through us, but that he is limitless in who he is in himself. And this is most comforting of all. You see, much of the teaching that Jesus is doing here is first and foremost for his own apostles. The back and forth conversation enlightens us to that fact. But in John's gospel, there's further light shed upon it. John 6 verse 6, where John records this miracle, he says, Jesus did this, that is, did this, fed 20,000 from five loaves and two fish, to prove to them and to test them. For he himself knew what he would do. I want you to think about this. Having been with Jesus for a while now, you would think that when Christ said, you feed them, that they would immediately get the implication. Well, one of Jesus' miracles is on the way. We've seen him do many miracles. You would think their answer would be, we can't do it, Lord, but thou canst. Thou canst take whatever we have, and by thy power and grace, thou art able to feed the whole multitude. But they didn't say that, did they? Because at that moment, their faith was not very active, or perhaps not active at all. Neither in who he is, nor in what he does. They, in fact, had seemed to almost forget what he had done in the past. Like Israel in the Old Testament, forgetting that their God parted the Red Sea. How quickly we can become unbelieving. Have you ever been just really disgusted with yourself? Angry at yourself, at your doubts and fears and worries when God has been with you 10,000 times in the past and you doubt Him 10,000 number one time. How foolish. Oh, disciples, don't you know He can easily feed the multitude? But you see, we're just like them. Are you satisfied? With Jesus, exactly the way he is? Do you fully trust in him and in his limitless ability? Are you satisfied with all of who he is and what he does in you and with you and for you right now from the depth of your inmost being? Or are you clinging to anxiety and worry and covetousness and dissatisfaction? 
You see, so often when we when, we, when our trust in Jesus starts to lower, we start putting our trust in other things, or we start putting our faith in other relationships. My spouse or my grandchildren or my children will leave me with profound satisfaction, or my job will prove fulfilling to me, or my reputation and fame will grant me what I'm searching for, or my friendships will give me purpose in life, or my hobbies will make me happy. But none of that, you see, will give you what you need and what you're really hungering for. It's only Jesus. And it's only He who is limitless, who He is in Himself, that can give you what you're looking for. This is the whole point of the miracle. I am the bread of life. I am the manna that came out of heaven. Whoever eats of me and drinks of me shall never thirst again. I will satisfy him or her with myself. With myself. You see, yes, our spouse, our children, our jobs, our hobbies, our friendships can give us some measure of, of joy in life. But you see, if we don't have Jesus, there will be an emptiness. We won't be filled. We won't be satisfied. Verse 42 won't, won't happen. They did all eat and were filled and satisfied. No. There'll be something, well, empty inside of you because you're you're still you're still looking for everything in this life and in this world and this round world can never fill our triangular shaped heart only the triune god can do that only jesus can do that and so we need to repent of our sin we need to repent of the sin of trying to find true joy and true fulfillment and true satisfaction in anything in this world Daily, we need to remind ourselves of who He is and what He does so that no matter what providence comes our way, we don't lose our joy. We don't use, lose our contentment. We don't lose our satisfaction. For we are filled and satisfied in the bread of life. That is what this miracle is teaching us. It's teaching us Psalm 16, verse 5. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance. The Lord is the portion of my cup. You see, in salvation, when we receive Jesus by true spirit work faith, I don't receive a thing, an object. I'm receiving the triune, limitless, fatherly God Himself in and through Jesus Christ. I receive His wholeness and His fullness and I am satisfied with the giver who's always more than His gift. You see, to be satisfied with Christ's provision does not necessarily mean that I'm satisfied with His person. But to be satisfied with Christ's person necessarily means I'm satisfied with His provision. So when you come to faith in Christ, you receive God. You receive the fullness of God. He fills your soul with Himself through His Son, and you are satisfied. And you hear Him say to you, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. 
He's limitless in filling us with Himself. And then fourthly, finally, Christ is teaching us in this miracle, by implication at least, about the limitlessness we will experience with Him in heavenly glory. They all did eat, and they were all satisfied. It was a picture that this wilderness isn't the end of God's story. You know the story. People were redeemed from Egypt. They were in the wilderness. But where was the end? The land of milk and honey. The land of the fig trees and the vines. The land of rest. Canaan. And you know that Canaan was a type of the heavenly Canaan. In Deuteronomy 12, God says, You shall not receive rest from all your enemies till you possess the land of your inheritance. Well, dear people of God, the land of your inheritance is heavenly glory with Jesus and all the redeemed forever in the heavenly Canaan. And that land is coming. There is rest now. There is eternal life now in principle. But it is not complete. In the here and now, there's always going to be sin and suffering mixed in. But there's a day coming after the resurrection of the dead when we will enter the land of rest in perfection. No more crying. No more curse. No more tears in the eye. No more death. No more disease. No more sin. No more temptation. The saints, as Richard Baxter called it in his 700-page book by this title, The Saints, Everlasting Rest. Come ye apart, not into a wilderness, but into a city built by God, the new Jerusalem. And not for a while, but come ye apart forever, forever and ever and ever into this land, heaven, the saints rest. The most happy state of a Christian, says Richard Baxter, the perfect, endless enjoyment of God himself. And then Baxter describes this rest this way. It is all defined by love. Heaven is a world of love. Christian, believe this and think upon it. Thou shalt be eternally embraced in the arms of that love which was from everlasting and will extend to everlasting of that love which brought the Son of God's love from heaven to earth, from earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to glory, that love which was weary for you, hungry, tempted, scorned, scourged, buffeted, spit upon, crucified, and pierced. That love will internally embrace you with perfect created love and most perfect uncreated love meet together. It will be not like Joseph and his brethren who lay upon one another's necks weeping. It will be loving and rejoicing, not loving and sorrowing. And all this love is provided in Jesus Christ who is magnified and illustrated as he feeds the 5,000, for he is the bread of life. In him there is fullness in the Father's house and bread to spare. And you see, all of that limitlessness is pictured in the Lord's Supper, in the one bite of bread and the one sip of wine is pictured that He is the bread of life. And He is life itself for His people. Well, let me 
Let me conclude with three applications. First is to you fathers. Today, today you may well feel your fatherly sins and shortcomings, as I mentioned at the beginning. But this fatherly, perfect Savior has everything you need for every shortcoming you will ever experience. In Him, you will not only find forgiveness for your fatherly sins, but you'll find salvation from every sin. And exponentially, forever, He is willing and able to fill you with Himself. To live Christ is to die again eternally. Flee to Him. And second, to those of you who wish to examine yourself for a divine right to partake of the Lord's Supper, let me just ask you a question about each of my points tonight, really quickly. First, has Christ ever opened your heart so that all your known sins you've told back to Him and repented of them at His feet? And have you ever experienced then that your heart burned within you as He spoke to you by the way of His merciful truth of who He is in Himself comforting you from His Word as you found comfort in praying and confessing? Second, have you ever learned to find your spiritual rest in the finished work of Emmanuel and rejoice wholeheartedly To discover experientially that salvation is entirely in Him and not at all in you. And thirdly, do you know Him even to a small degree? Even to a small degree as your shepherd teacher. So that His Word comes alive for you. So that He's your favorite teacher. And your lovely shepherd. Have you ever experienced in Him you shall not want? He will make you to lie down in green pastures and so on. And fourth, have you ever found a sense of sweet and full satisfaction in Jesus Christ alone is your bread of life? Well, you see, if you can answer yes to these questions, you're not invited, but you're commanded. Come ye apart yourselves into a desert place, into the wilderness of this world, Come under the sacrament and partake of the spiritual feast that awaits you in Jesus. You will be filled and you will eat and you will be satisfied. And I pray that your cup will run over. My final application is to you young people and children. You don't have a church right yet. But I hope that you too have learned to be satisfied only in Jesus. You have a life waiting for you. Maybe, you have, maybe you'll live a long time in this world, but a long time is a short time. And you need to find Jesus while you're young. You need to confess your sins while you're young. There's a beautiful poem, a beautiful hymn, and the chorus goes like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. 
That's my wish for you, children and young people and older ones, that we would find our all in this wonderful fatherly Savior who gives us all the provisions we need as we journey through this wilderness here below, through Vanity Fair, all the way to celestial glory. Amen. O God, God of satisfaction, God who satisfies our souls and gives us everything we need, we bless Thee. Keep us, Lord, from looking to anything of this world for a deepest meaning and purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction. But help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus, to look full in his wonderful face. Let the things of earth grow strangely dim also in this preparatory week and the coming Lord's Day in the light of thy glory and grace, Lord Jesus, so that we can come to the table confessing and experiencing at the table the Lord is my shepherd. I love him with all my heart because he first loved me. I love him as he is. Yes, Lord, I do love thee. Thou knowest all things. I shall not want. Amen.